So last week, as we considered Paul's question, shall we keep sinning so that grace may abound? We saw that the way that we can emphatically answer that question with a absolutely not, the only way that we can do that is by declaring that we, are, we have died to sin and that we now live for God. That's the only way we can come back in response. How can we do this? Should we keep sinning? Absolutely not. Why? Because we have died to sin and are now living for God. How do we make that public declaration? How do we tell the world that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus? We get baptized in water. In going under the water and then being raised up from the water, we issue a death notice that our old self was dead and buried, and our new self has been raised up to new life in Christ Jesus. And so Paul wraps up that section of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, by writing in verse 14, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And so we pick up now in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and, and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.15 sounds a whole lot like Romans 6.1. Paul is essentially asking two rhetorical questions about continuing to sin. Should we continue to sin since grace is abounding? And should we continue to sin since we are no longer under the law? And here's the important difference in the two questions. In Romans chapter 6 verse 1, the question revolves around what God is doing pouring out his grace, giving this abundant provision of grace, what God is doing based on his character. 
That's what's in the focus in Romans 6, 1. God's abounding in grace towards us, and therefore can we, should we, abuse the grace of God by continuing to sin? In Romans chapter 6, verse 15, the question has to do with what we are doing based on our obedience to God's commands. God has removed the burden of the law since the law was never able in itself to save us. Then, can we, should we, abuse the liberty of not being under the law by continuing to sin? Those are the two questions, right? God's giving his grace. Can we now just continue to sin because, hey, grace of God? Or, God has removed this burden of the law. He's giving us this freedom. Can we then just sin because we say, hey, I'm not under the law. I don't have to obey this law, right? Can we continue to sin in that way? That's what Paul is asking, the two rhetorical questions. But Paul is making it clear that in both cases, we have no excuse or justification for sin. We can't justify sin by pointing to these two things, right? And so in Romans 6, 1 through 14, Paul refers to us no longer being slaves to sin. Sin does not have control over us. We have been set free from the rule and the power of sin. Now in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, Paul is expanding on that by stating that since we are no longer slaves to sin, we are becoming slaves to righteousness. It's a either or. It's, you, you know, that's what he's presenting. Now, a year ago, when we were studying Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 38, we saw how Jesus took the role of a household slave and washed the feet of his disciples. Right? We know the story of the Last Supper. The disciples are gathered there in the upper room, and then they're arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus puts aside his robes and, or clothes, uh, outer garments, and he wraps this towel, and he washes the feet of his disciples, the, it, which is a task, which was a role that would have been left to the household slaves, to the lowest of the household slaves even, you could say. And Jesus told his disciples, Jesus made it very clear to them, that they should not be like the world's leaders who lord their power over others, Instead, Jesus told his disciples, they should serve others like slaves serve a master. Right? That's the language he uses, and that's how we spoke about this. And at that time, I made some points about slavery, about what slavery is and what it isn't and so on, that I need to repeat this morning, that bear repeating this morning as we look at this topic of slaves to righteousness. Now, although the Bible refers to physical slavery, in multiple instances, the Bible can never be used to justify subjugating another person. The Bible cannot be used to support racial discrimination. And the Bible cannot be used as a proof text that one people group are somehow inferior to another for whatever reason, including because of a curse. The Bible cannot be used in those ways. The Bible is not justifying race-based enslavement enforced obedience, loss of freedom, or absolute and abusive subservience. That's not what the Bible is actually talking about. But here's the difficult and somewhat difficult truth we must acknowledge. 
although the Bible does not condone physical slavery, it does not directly condemn it either. It doesn't outright say physical slavery, totally wrong, you know, get rid of it. It doesn't say that directly. So it doesn't condone it, but it doesn't directly condemn it either. Indeed, instead, in both the Old and the New Testaments, the Bible presents a radically different definition of the relationship between slaves and masters than what was prevalent in the ancient Near East or the Greek, Persian, and Roman empires. There was, slavery was rampant. Slavery was very prevalent. But the Bible presents something that is different. And when it uses these terms, it starts to speak about them in different ways. In the Old Testament, God tells the children of Israel to periodically set their slaves free. And these liberated slaves could choose to serve. They could offer themselves to the master. You know? And we'll come back to that in a, in a little bit. In the New Testament, masters are told not to threaten their slaves, but to treat slaves with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. That's not language that would have been familiar to the others that were practicing physical slavery. This is very different thinking. Very different way of expressing, expressing that relationship. And very different way of, Bible, of the Bible saying, you've got to think about this as both of you being under a different master. Right? The master and the slave and so on. In the book of Philemon, Paul writes to Philemon on behalf of Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus. And he says to Philemon that he should receive Onesimus back as a dear brother in the Lord. So... God was redeeming and moving his people out of the mindsets and behaviors associated with slavery in the world around them. He's changing, right? And you'll notice this throughout the Bible. God takes those things that the people are familiar with and redeems them and changes them, transforms them. And he says, look, you thought this was what it was, but I'm telling you that this is what it is. Sacrifice was common amongst the ancient Near East, the peoples of the ancient Near East. But God takes it and says, your sacrifice is only pointing you to the fact that these will never suffice. I will send you a perfect sacrifice. Right? There were temples and tabernacles and all sorts of things amongst the ancient Near East. But he says, this temple of this that I'm asking you to build is where my presence will be, the true and living God. And there will be no idol, there will be nothing else because my presence will fill it. I mean, he took those things that the people were familiar with and reformed it, redeemed it, showed them what it truly needed to point to. So in the New Testament in particular, the Bible uses the practice of physical slavery that would have been well known to its original audience. To, so the audience of the people that are hearing these scriptures, hearing these teachings, they would have known what physical slavery was about. And so it's using that practice, those things that were happening around them, and it's using that to make a point about spiritual slavery. So to an audience, that would have immediately understood what being a slave entailed, the Bible refers extensively to us being slaves of Christ. 
It's using that term. The Bible is referring in that way to our exclusive ownership to one master, in this case, the Lord Jesus, the Lord, total availability for service to the master, and complete dependence on the master. Those are some of the themes that are coming out, that are being expressed by using this term. So it is with this understanding that Paul uses the language and imagery of slavery here in Romans chapter 6. You've got to understand, that's the context. That's how he's coming into this. So notice, because, and, and it becomes very clear, because notice what he says in verse 19, uh, Romans 6, 19. He says, I am using an example from everyday life. I'm using an, every, an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. You won't really be able to understand what it means to give yourself fully to the Lord and to be completely subject to Him and to be obedient to Him. You can't relate to that in your human limitation. So let me use an example from everyday life. You understand what slavery is like? Well, guess what? Instead of being slaves to sin now, you need to be slaves to righteousness. That's how he's using the contrast, right? And he says, so, and that's why he says, let me, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Paul is saying, you understand what it means to be a slave. Let me use that analogy to explain this. Just as sin owned you, now let righteousness own you. Just as you were completely dependent on and served sin, now be completely dependent on and serve righteousness. So what does it mean for our daily lives to be slaves of righteousness? Well, the first thing that happens here, the contrast and the message is that we have to offer ourselves as slaves of righteousness. That's what Paul says, right? Offer yourselves as slaves of righteousness. Verse 17 describes our natural, our, our default condition. We used to be slaves to sin. We're born in sin. We are in slavery to sin. And as we saw in Romans chapter 5, sin entered the world through Adam. And we are, therefore, born into the slavery of sin. What Jesus does for us is that by his sacrifice, by paying the penalty of sin, by redeeming us with his blood, by pouring out his grace, he provides the means by which we can be free from the slavery of sin. So he's doing something to enable the power of sin to be broken, the slavery of sin to be broken. But here's the critical difference. Jesus does not force us to become slaves to righteousness. He enables, he provides the way by which the slavery of sin can be broken. The power of sin on our lives can be broken. But he does not force us to become slaves of righteousness. Slaves to righteousness. He doesn't say, okay, now, you know, you were going this way, but now I'm going to make you go this way. He says, look, I'm giving you the way out. I'm giving you the means by which you can be saved. 
I'm giving you the means by which you can be set free. But it's you. Your choice. You respond. You receive. You believe. You accept. And so he says to the people, I don't force you. I, don't, I give you this. But when we accept what Jesus did for us, we are choosing to offer ourselves to the Lord as slaves of righteousness. We're saying, I used to be a slave of sin, and I was controlled by sin. Jesus has set me free, or Jesus is showing me how I can be set free. I receive that, I accept that, I believe that, and now I choose to offer myself to Jesus as a slave of righteousness. And we're choosing to bind ourselves, to unite ourselves. We are choosing to indenture ourselves to the Lord. We're saying, I'm on, I want to serve you. I want to be your servant for the rest of my life. That's a really significant statement. There's, no, there's nothing in the world around you right now that's like it. Everybody around you and most of the things that you, even the voices in your head are telling you, I don't want to be serving anybody. I want to grow in power and in position and in authority. And I want others to serve me. But Jesus' words are very different. And the message of the Bible is that we would choose to serve. And as we serve God, we learn how to serve others. Right? So here, we choose to bind ourselves. We then learn who God is, what truth is, what he requires of us. And progressively, we come to obey from our heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed our allegiance. Right? That's what Paul is saying. Our heart is being transformed. Our allegiance is being changed. We were allegiant. We were faithful. We were fixed on this way of life. Now our allegiance has shifted and now our heart starts to get transformed. And as we learn these truths of the Lord Jesus, we're saying, oh Lord God, as we do that, we are progressively, day by day, growing developing, maturing, so that we may live for the Lord Jesus. The Christian walk is not a one-time thing, or the Christian life, the decision. It's not because you were born a Christian. It's not even because you were born again as a Christian. It's a lifelong journey that every single day that we would come to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, today, because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your sacrifice, because of the gospel, I serve you. I choose to serve you. I walk in your ways. I, I obey you. And I am joyfully telling somebody else about this so that they may come to know about this wonderful truth and grace and mercy and abundant provision of God. That's the Christian journey. Right? So here, he says, every day we're offering up the members of our bodies. We looked at this in the previous portion. We're offering up the members of our bodies and we're offering up our whole beings to the Lord, spirit, soul, and body, and saying, Lord Jesus, today you take me and you make something of me. You 
take control of my eyes, my ears, my, my tongue, my, my heart, my, my feet, my arms. You, know, you take control of this. Right? I am prone to wander. I am prone to say something. I am prone to think these things. I am prone to look at this stuff. Lord, help me today that I may serve you. Right? It takes that submission. It takes that recognition of authority. It takes that willingness to be a slave of Christ so that we could say this to the Lord. You know, as uh, Timothy Keller puts it in his Romans commentary, we offer ourselves to whatever we seek as our highest good in life. What do you think is your highest good in life? That great career, that, you know, making a lot of money, having fame, being a social media influencer. I mean, what is it that you think is the highest good in life? Right? Whatever we seek as the highest good in life, that's what we will offer ourselves to. And he says, we offer ourselves to whatever we seek as our highest good in life, whether it's power or acceptance or some cause. And then we become slaves of whatever that may be. We don't think of it that way. We don't say it's not, you know, that, oh, this is controlling me. But think about what, what we do, how we spend our time, where we, where we give our resources. Those things that we think are the highest good of life, those things that we seek after, those things that we earnestly desire, those will now start to control. We become slaves to it. And he says, thus no one, no one is in control of his or her life. We are actually controlled by that to which we have offered ourselves. Whether we call ourselves religious or not, we all have a God. We are all worshipers. Whether you know it or not, whether you speak in those terms or not, whether you describe your actions in that way or not, we're all worshipers. We're worshiping something. Right? And the question is, what is it that you're worshiping? What is it that you're offering yourself to? In contrast to physical slavery, as slaves of righteousness, the Lord does not force us or abuse us. He gives us true freedom, which includes the ability to willfully sin. That's the irony. God sets us free and gives us true freedom. It's not this controlling, addicting, you know, uh, sin-based freedom that we think we have. It's true freedom that God gives us. And the irony is that in that true freedom, he actually gives us the ability to sin. We can choose to sin. We can choose to do what we want. We can choose to rebel against him. We can choose to say, yeah, I taste and see that the Lord is good, but now I don't want any more of it. I mean, that, that is the freedom that the Lord is giving us. And so just as we choose to offer ourselves as slaves of righteousness, we can also choose to disobey or leave the Lord. That's what Paul describes where he says, Hymenus and Alexander, they have shipwrecked their faith. They have abandoned. They have gone astray. They've, they've just said, nope, I don't want this. So we can choose 
to return to the slavery of sin. God sets us free, or God provides the means by which we may come into true freedom and liberty. But we can choose to become slaves to sin again. We can choose to become under the control of sin again. The Bible is telling us very clearly that God gives us the power and the means to remain free. But if we say, ah, this looks really good. Maybe just for a short while, God. Maybe just, you know, I had a friend in high school who said, all this stuff about God sounds very interesting, but I'm too young to give up on all the stuff that I enjoy. He saw Christianity and the things of God as a party pooper thing. You know, I mean, it was just like, you know, this is going to take away all my fun. So he said, when I'm old, I'll think about this. Right? I don't know if he's thought about it yet, but we can choose to do things like that. We can choose to say, you know what, this is pleasurable. This is, in, you know, enticing, exciting, whatever. I, I choose to do this. But when the Lord sets us free, he doesn't cut off all those possibilities. He doesn't cut off those desires. He doesn't say to us, now suddenly I'll just you know, flip your mind. You will never think of a, a, a tempting thought again. You will never have an evil desire. You will never, you will never desire to you know, do this or do that. Or, you know. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm giving you the means by which you can walk in my ways. But you can choose. Which means, as we look at this, that as we enter a life of slavery to righteousness by offering ourselves to the Lord, as we continue in the life of slavery to righteousness, we earn the wages of righteousness. So how do we live as slaves to righteousness? We first offer ourselves, we make that commitment, we dissolve to stay there, we look to the Lord, but the second part of that is that we earn the wages of righteousness. Now, week after week, We've been reinforcing this point that we cannot earn our salvation. We cannot earn the blessings of God. We cannot get things from God by our good works or even by our suffering. We can't say, oh God, I've suffered so much, you owe me this. We can't do that. None of that works. None of that is valid. We don't earn or merit God's grace. It is a gift to us. That's what we've read here. That's what we read in multiple passages. But Paul, but Paul points out that we do earn a wage. We earn a wage either of sin or of righteousness. The wages of sin, this famous verse that we sort of hear about, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is separation from God. The wages of continuing to do what you do, you indulge, you, you give way to the flesh, you will earn something from it. You will earn a wage. It's pleasurable, it's enjoyable, it gives you something in return. And in the short term, it looks like you're in, you know, it's a good return on your investment. But ultimately, that earning that comes, that wage that comes from sin is not life. It's death. It may deceive, deceivingly look like life. Ooh, I'm living life to the fullest. I'm enjoying life. But it actually isn't. You have gained the whole world and lost your soul. And so here we are, earning the wages of sin, which is really death. 
Paul is pointing out that this wages that we earn, either of sin or of righteousness, it's more about reaping what we sow than anything else. When we sow to the flesh, when we indulge in ungodly behavior, we reap the consequences that cause us to be ashamed. When we reap the consequences of sin, we reap separation from God. But when we sow to the Spirit, the contrast that he says is, when you sow to the Spirit, you reap, you earn a wage of holiness. Now, again, as we've said in the past, holiness is not being holier than thou. Holiness is not ensuring exemplary public conduct. Look at me. I'm a holy man. I'm a holy person. Right? I do holy things. I speak holy words. It's not that. It's not even knowing all the things about a holy God and about his word. It's not just that. Holiness is not all these things that the Bible speaks about that the Pharisees and the others did and Jesus soundly condemned. Holiness has nothing to do with all of our external behaviors. Holiness has to do with submission to the Holy Spirit. Holiness has to do with willing, cheerful, immediate, and ever-increasing obedience to the Lord. As we ever increase in awareness of Him and of His truths, we ever increase in obedience and submission to Him. Holiness has to do with a sincere desire to please the Lord. Holiness has to do with worship and consecration. Holiness has to do with daily, diligent crucifixion of the sinful nature with its passions and desires and daily living to God. Holiness has to do with loving God, loving others, and making disciples. That's what holiness is about. I mentioned that as we studied Romans 6, we would cross-reference the book of Titus Last week we looked at Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. This week, go to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And it says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Go back and read that again and read it again and read it you know, another time. Just look at what the Lord is saying. Because he has given us salvation, because he has saved us, he's giving us the means, the power, the ability to say no to ungodly desires to say no to sin, to say no to our passions and our sinful nature. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm giving you this ability. 
I'm giving you this power. And, and the grace of God is teaching you. The Holy Spirit is teaching you. It is instructing you how to say no, when to say no, where to say no, to whom to say no. Right? That we would say, I'm led by the Spirit and I, I say no to this. All these things that I was doing before, I say no to them. The friends that would say, hey, you used to hang out with us and do this. How come you're not doing that? You would be able to, in love and with grace, say no. Because. Not to be holier than thou. Not to say, oh, I'm now a Christian. Right? And you, heathen. No. But to de demonstrate the love of God and the transforming power of God to say, you know what? God has given me the strength and the means and the truth to be able to say no to this. How many of you have had trouble saying no to, I don't know, something? I won't, I won't name it. Then you'll think I'm speaking about you personally. No, no. I, I, you know, something that you know you've had trouble saying no to. How many of you have had that situation? What do we say? And we, we, we confront and we say, oh, I just can't say no to that. Right? And for some it's big, it's, for some it's small, but we do it. And I'm not suggesting to you that you can't have the things that would be pleasurable. God created us for pleasure. That's not at all the point I'm making. But I am saying to you that we have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, what is it in my life? Not my brother's, not my sister's life. Not so that I can point out to them and say, you better do this, otherwise you're not holy. But what is it in my life that I need to say no to. Because your word is telling me, it's teaching me, it is informing me, it is giving me the power to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. You know what the Bible is telling you? God is giving you the power that you need to live a boring life. Isn't that what the world says? Boring Christians. Well, wonderful. Praise God that he gives you the power to be a boring person. Because that boring person that you are is the most dynamic, most life-filled, most joyful, most you know, loving, most gracious person that could be. That's who we are called to be in this world. That the world around us would not say to us, oh, you're, you, know, you don't have fun. They would say, how come you are so... Joyful. How come you are so calm? How come you are so patient? How come you are so good? How come you are so gentle? How come there is a peace that guards your hearts and mind? They won't use that word. But, you know, how, how is it that this is possible for you? And we would say, oh, the salvation of God has given me the ability to say no to ungodly things. And given me the ability to say yes to God. To submit to him. And to live for him in this present age. While I wait for the hope that is to come. I'm not wishing for it. I am expectant for it. I know what the Lord has promised. I am awaiting it. And so that's the life of righteousness. That's the life of righteousness where we deliberately say no to ungodliness. We are intentional. We are purposeful. We are vigilant. We are expectant. And so the actions that we take in this regard 
the wages of these actions, when we will deny self, when we will crucify self, when we will constantly keep taking those kind of actions, what is the wages of that? What is the return on that? Holiness. What is holiness? Holiness is just the fact that we can be together with the holy God. God says, I am holy, so I want you to be holy. We read that passage sometimes and we think it's an unrealistic standard. How could God possibly expect us to be holy? How could God possibly say, be holy, you know, be perfect because I am perfect. Be holy because I am holy. God. You know what God is really saying? He's saying, look, I'm holy. And to be in close connection with me, proximity with me, intimacy of relationship with me, I want you to be holy. And I'll give you the power to be holy. I'll give you the means by which you can live in this life, you can live in this earth in such a way that you can come into my presence. I break down all the barriers, I tear the curtain, I, I remove all the things and I let you come right into the Holy of Holies and to be intimate with me. But I'm doing this so that you can come into being with a holy God. A holy God can't tolerate unholiness. So he's not saying to us, I want you to be holy for, you know, just so that you'll be holy. He's saying, look, I can't, I can't tolerate unholiness, so I want you to be holy so that you can come and be with me. And how, do we, how are you made holy? Because of what I have done. Not because of your good works. Not because you are so good, you know, that you think holy thoughts, you act holy ways, you speak holy words. No, I am doing this for you. I'll cover you. I'll bring you to myself. So be holy because I'm holy. Oh, I want to be intimately related with you. So when we talk like that, when we speak like that, when we look at God in that way, we say, oh God. You know, the word in Hebrew that uh, speaks of holiness is kadosh. And kadosh really just means cut. It is to be separated. It's to be consecrated. It's to be refined and set for God's purpose. And when we do that, when we say, Lord, I want to be holy before you. I want to live as a slave of righteousness. Then we can respond and apply the word of God that we are hearing by living as slaves of righteousness. All of humanity serves one of two masters. All of humanity. Whether they like it or not, whether they admit it or not, whether they articulate it that way or not, all of humanity is serving one of two masters. There is no neutral middle ground. There is no, I'll serve both. All ways are good. Everything is okay. You will either serve sin or you will serve the Lord. You may sin. You may continue to sin. But you will not serve sin if you're serving the Lord. You may serve sin or you may serve the Lord. Either or. Question for us. A challenge for us. The the strong call of the word of God is be slaves to righteousness not slaves to sin let the power of sin be broken let the control of sin be broken and removed be slaves to righteousness recognize Jesus as Lord let him be your master even as we conclude and even as I close I want to encourage you that you, know, you can take some time here and you can be just praying in the sanctuary for a few minutes even after we close. 
You can take time even as you go home. But I'd encourage you, don't let this word just simply be informational. Right? You say, oh, I learned a little bit more about slavery. I learned a little bit more about you know, what God thinks about or why this, this imagery is used in the Bible. No. I want to challenge you that you would say, Lord, how do I live as a slave of Christ? The Bible is replete. Even, in fact, when we looked at Titus, the way that Titus opens, Paul says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. He identifies that way consistently. And you will see multiple references to that in the New Testament. What does that mean? What should that look like for my life? At a time when everybody is going their own way, where individualism is the thing, how do I submit? How do I say, not my will, but yours be done? How do I come to you and say, Lord God, you be Lord, not just my Savior, but you be Lord of my life? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. And Lord, your word is good for us. Lord, I thank you that your word is actually simple. It's not easy. There's nothing that is, Lord, uh, easy for us to do or respond to, but it is actually quite simple. And you have called us not to be slaves to sin anymore, but to be slaves to righteousness. And I pray, Father, that this day, in all that we do and think and say, in all that we carry forward through this week, Lord, that we will pay attention to your Holy Spirit, that we will say no to ungodliness, that we will live according to your spirit, that we will receive your life. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the means by which we may do so. So, Lord, now, we offer ourselves to you. Father, for every person that is here, here in the sanctuary, those that are watching online, those that may hear this message later, Lord, every person who has not yet offered themselves to you, every person who has not yet said, I give you my life, I pray, Lord, that even today, even now, they would be reminded, they would be challenged, they would be prompted to say, Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. Thank you that you gave your life, you shed your blood for my sake. I receive your sacrifice. I accept what you have done. I want to be joined to you in new life. And Father, for those that have done that, Lord, every single day, Lord, may we grow in this increasing measure of, Lord, submitting and yielding ourselves, our members of the body, our everything, our lives, as instruments of righteousness. Lord, that we would truly see the goodness of God manifest in our life. We thank you, Lord, that you hear us and you answer. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.